And finally, we are back with another installment of Generate Views. It's been like a, a, a week or two. I, I didn't get a chance to... Because I really want to move on from this book because, uh, you know, some people are... Well, I don't blame them. The subject matter is not exactly fit. It's not, it's not exactly for a predominantly right-leaning audience. But nevertheless, the, the chapters that I'm getting into from Mbembe is... Uh, the chapter on viscerality and the first half of his writing on Fanon, which is the biggest chapter in the book and viscerality as well from, uh, you know, it, it really illustrates a lot of different things that culminates into the general thesis of what he means by necropower. So Mbembe, uh, I must warn you that especially, well, especially in the paywall version, he gets very polemical he tends to repeat himself. He tends to have a lot of huge uh, shifts in narrative that jump from like one time period to the other. Because again, it's it's classic, um, you know, post Foucauldian genealogy, genealogy, where uh, genealogy, yeah, genealogy, where he makes these dramatic leaps in historical periods to illustrate his point, and he does mention some things that uh, if you, <laughs> if if you were a part of uh, you know. A lot of contemporary right-wing discourse, you would say, well, actually, that's pretty based. But we'll get into it. We'll try to be as impartial as possible. He does, not only does he get polemical, but he tends to um, trail off into different points when he's describing historical acts uh, or events and acts done to these, uh, you know, subaltern populations. And viscerality especially, the whole point of viscerality of this chapter is to give you an actual blood and guts feeling of necropower. It is very much the sort of Foucauldian thesis of measuring power in the body. And I'll try to be as quick as possible because I want to, like I said, get through the book. I might have to do, uh, you know, part four. But I, I've been doing a lot of different podcasts. I, I had my uh, special content operation week last week. And I, I just... Behind the scenes, I've been interviewing people for Content Minded, and it's just been, uh, you know, everything all at once. Everyone wants uh, a piece of the Geo. Everyone wants a piece of the Fez. And uh, it's, you know, as as much as I feel that, like, I'm a type of person where I can't say no, and I go on people's shows, and it... But the thing is, though, your, your own content uh, does tend to suffer a bit. It does tend to uh you know it, it is a huge chunk of time because the way i work is that when i do a podcast especially if it's for someone else and especially if i'm double booked on the same day then like i was on wednesday that's why i couldn't put out a content minded at the week of this recording is because uh i like to basically get in a mood where i don't particularly think or do anything else i like to sort of like when a performer like when a musician has you know a gig that night you really just uh you know having done local shows having been around them you know them yeah, different different bands it, you know you just you sit around waiting to play and you do a lot of nothing you just like I mean, you listen to the other bands you get ready and that's it it's sort of like that it's sort of like you have to go into a meditative state to really perform at your best you know especially if it's someone 
that has a smaller show than you and you want to promote them and so forth. But anyways, that's considered baseball. Nobody likes that. Well, maybe some people do. But um, this is the chapter on viscerality. I'll see how far I can go into the Fanon chapter as well, but I'll probably have to, depending on how long I go, well, we'll see. Before I hit the break, you know, music break. Uh, so viscerality, far, chapter four. In what way can we problematize some of the con constituent features of these times of ours? This particular moment our world is going through a moment from which there doesn't yet seem to be a proper name. And, and so this chapter, I must say, goes directly into Heidegger, uh, his critiques of modern technology. I think he gets a bit of Heidegger wrong, which we'll see. But also, this is a chapter that requires me to read more than, especially like, you know, the Fanon one. I'm going to have to like breeze through some of his historical accounts of things. But anyways, there gets to be seen a proper name. Since naming our time is part of what is at stake, I suggest that in the midst of the current dread and confusion, one thing at least is clear. Ours is a time of planetary entanglement. Uh, and so he gets into the immigration issue and the and the, uh, the the migrant waves that happen in Europe. And you know, you know, it's always fun talking about that when it comes to modern academics. But you know, contemporary academics worldwide, the combination of fast capitalism, soft power, wealth, warfare, and the saturation of the everyday by digital communication technologies has led to the acceleration of speed of the information, uh, the intensification of connections. And he alludes to a certain thinker there, but he doesn't name him directly. I even checked the footnotes. I wonder why, but we'll, we'll see. We'll get into it. Uh, <laughs> a certain very important academic thinker that happens to be mutuals with me on Twitter and happens to be mutuals with quite a bit, uh, quite a bit of you. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Technology and eschatology. This is a subheading. We inhabit from Heidegger's question concerning technology two ways of interrogating technology of the technological. Heidegger was concerned about technology in terms of what he called its essence, or more precisely, its double essence, that is, technology as instrumentum, a means to an end, and technology as anthropology. So basically tracking the development of technology and technics, which comes before technology, that Jacques Ellul also picks up from Heidegger, and basically tracing an anthropology based off of that, a sort of roadmap of human history based on the techniques that develop in its relation to technology. In itself, a way of thinking technology is, or to use another word, one of its formations, a model of revealing. Technology is the final revealing, as we know. Because remember, all thinking to Heidegger, this is very important, is aletheia. It is revealing. That is what the essence of truth is. It's the essence of thought. It is the clearing towards newer concepts, towards newer parameters of, of being and so forth. Aletheia. So truth is very much... Um, I had a professor that compared it very, very nicely to Taoism, where it's the clearing... It's kind of like the, the Taoist ink painting, the literati painting, where there is always more to come. There is room making for truth. It is revealing, but always a concealment in the revealing. That is what Alethia is. Uh, it's a very different truth than Platonism, which is, you know, as we know, the realm of the forms that gives hypostasized essence to all things and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know the basics, right? So Heidegger, of course, is speaking of truth very, very differently. Uh, a model of revealing, understanding, revelation, a certain kind of presence in the specific realm where unconcealment takes place, where truth, unconcealment take, takes place, where truth happens. As a way of thinking, technology's role was to prepare us to entertain 
with a free relationship to it, to experience technology within its own bounds. Heidegger thought was the only way to open up human existence to its essence, which is a means to truth and freedom. What is precisely at stake is the invocation of the term of the essence of technology to experience the technological within its own bounds. Or when we suggest the technological is the event through which truth and freedom come into being and manifest themselves as ultimately being, as ultimate being and the ultimate dwelling of the human. The essence of technology, argues Heidegger, is by no means anything technological. So again, it's not really technology, there's techniques behind it. We shall never experience our relationship with the essence of technology so long as we merely conceive and push forward the technological. Put it, put up with it or evade it. Everywhere we remain unfree and change to technology, whether we passionately affirm or deny, but we deliver it over into the worst possible way uh, we regard as something neutral. This conception of it, to which today we particularly like to do a homage, to do homage, makes us utterly blind to the essence of technology. So it is not neutral. It is not impartial. So humans are sealed off from looking at the essence of technology if we just analyze the way that technology develops in its material sense. We have to look behind the assumptions that those technologies foist upon most people. This is what Heiger is saying. Technology has a whole litany of images of thought behind it that constitute the way we even think about technology. And so this is what Heidegger means, it's threatening the fun of revealing. But I think Mbembe, he, he sort of chills off into thinking that Heidegger like co-signs that, saying that technology actually is good because it gives us human flourishing and freedom, and this is connected to, you know, Western civilization, and uh, Heidegger was a fan of a certain painter of Austrians, and so, you, you know, you get the equation. But I don't, I, I think it's, these pages are ambiguous whether Mbembe thinks that about Heidegger or is just saying that this is a one particular view of Heidegger in the question, right? The famous essay, Question Concerning Technology. So now this is Bumbembe. Freedom is therefore the ground from which the question concerning technology must be posed. Heidegger assimilates freedom into something he calls the open, right? The open is where we engage with non-human animals, with technology, with inanimate ob in objects, um, uh, Giorgio Gombin talks about this with, uh, you know, non-human animals. He has this whole book called The Open. I had a friend actually, well, he probably won't, doesn't like me anymore, but I had a friend actually in grad school who went on to, not going to say the university, but he went into a, a, a PhD and to talk about the critical, critical animal studies stuff. And, uh, well, anyways, this, this was back before... You, you know, this was back before um, a lot of current discourse, so we were still on, you know, good terms. His insistence on approaching the technological from the vantage point of freedom in terms of disclosure and opening and dwelling is part of a long tradition in Western metaphysics when it comes to relation between humans and artifacts or technical objects. So compulsion to push on blindly with technology or what amounts to the same to rebel helplessly against it and to curse it as the work of the devil. So Heidegger is saying that there's no clear answer, right? There's no real clear delineation there. Can you, it's like the whole trad, like I hate to say it, a lot of like the trad and like pine tree and stuff, you know, Ted K discourse is unrealistic for this reason. You can't really put these genies back into a, you know, into the bottle. So what are you going to do as soon as you open that Pandora's box, right? So 
so then Mbebe goes on to say, the human in question is distinguished from non-human animals, non-humans, because of his or her presumably large cognitive capacity. Thanks to the latter, he has been able to free himself from a purely instinctual relationship with the environment. In this, he is not only distinct from the animal, he is also distinct from the primitive, that is, the class of original humans who still lives under the rule of animism. So again, this always ties back to racism, that this is... Uh, he has a very interesting take about that I think complicates this relationship to the political right, where he says that, well, we'll get to it, where he says that actually going back to where man can conquer nature directly is sort of like this Bappian vitalist, you know, ultra racist project that, you know, in actuality, that is the, the real right wing thought. It's not like Mahek and Wholesome Trad, like technology corrupts us, but actually, no, sorry, it's not like the Enlightenment. It, it, it's not like the Enlightenment. It's like to go back is inherently racist because you're directly conquering nature, whereas, you know, technology places this barrier in front of us. This is what he's trying to say. And it doesn't allow... And it, actually, technology conquers us. But the, but then again, this is sort of like... Maybe it's Bumbembe not, like, really reading his, you know, his political enemies, his political foes, because there's this huge debate between, like, the you know the techno-accelerationist vitalists and the trad primitivists, you know, the heckin' and Olsen trads. So they both have a different, uh, well, we'll get to, we'll get to it. At its core, the tradition harbors two kinds of anxiety. The first is a deep anxiety concerning the proper relation between people, humans, on the one hand, and things, objects, on the other. The belief is that people um, invent things, but not people are, and, but the, that people are not things. This being the case, the fear is a time when things take place. So now, so as we dehumanize the other, he says, Bumbembe, technology dehumanizes us. And of course, most Western countries are advanced technologically. You get the picture. How much of human activity should techno uh, technical objects replace? Since much of human, human activity takes shape through the human body, how much of this body should technology, uh, uh, technological objects replace? A second type of anxiety haunts this tradition. It manifests itself in the form of the acute nostalgia. So this is what I mean. This is where I'm getting into this political debate. For acute nostalgia for a mythical time where humans could ma manipulate the environment directly and at will. This originary capacity, we are told, has been taken away by machines and technological artifacts have become increasingly complex and autonomous. They now threaten to enslave or dehumanize and us by turning into mere extensions of the tools originally intended to serve us. Thus, the desire for a return to a time of spontaneous and non-mediated relationship with the natural world. This second type of anxiety speaks to the low loss of self-sufficiency and to the fear that industrial technological objects are no longer merely tools, and furthermore, they are now capable of inventing themselves independently of our intentions. So this is like the sort of Skynet, Screamers, you name any sci-fi franchise fear. Uh, as a matter of fact, unprecedented numbers of human beings are now embedded in increasingly complex technostructures. Over the past decades, numerous algorithms have been developed. They're inspired by the natural world and ideas of natural selection and environment and evolution, such as the case of genetic algorithms, substantive evolutionary algorithms that mimic um, actions inspired in biological operators, such as cells, you know, nanotech. As Margaret Medias' powerful argument, a shifting redistribution of powers between the human and technological is unfolding. Technologies in turn are more and more tied both metabolically and reproductively with complex networks of extraction and predation. 
many of whose who forms have led to the transgression of planetary boundaries as those relations to anthropological uh, anthropogenic climate change degenerative land use biodiversity loss creation of novel entities and genetic engineered organisms uh you know genetically engineered orgasms <laughs> to quote sam hyde in the boston paul bit but it's true i mean this is the sort of supreme anxiety of living in a you know especially when you have like massive genetic damage from ecological pollution uh, bpas seed oils you name it like there's going to be a fertility crisis i saw this article the other day that uh twitter people were you know freaking out about uh you know it's it's like uh <laughs> where they're like well what about people in co what about women in comas we could like rent out their wombs to have surrogate children it's like wow that that literally is sort of like the techno horror you know dystopian future environment where you know that's that's insane right like that's totally like you can't you can't fathom that level of hell you know what i mean like there's something so unnatural about it but anyways uh life itself is increasingly uh the genome process of being privately owned life itself is increasingly being perceived as commodity and to be replicated under the vol uh, volatility of market consumption so again this all goes back you know gmos pesticides chemicals um the idea that life might be open to nonlinear, exponentially chaotic systems is increasingly behind us we might be far removed from Heidegger and his preoccupation with metaphysical questions of truth and freedom, yet this rapid advance in automated systems is threatening the exceptionalism of the human species. Concerns about the technological singularity of our age are increasingly couched in the eschatological and apocalyptic language of human obsolescence or extinction. So a big part of the book is he's saying, of course, he's viewing it through a racial lens. So now he's saying that these advanced civilizations, they've oppressed the third world, and now we're the ones being you know, obsoleted by, you know, cue the Fear Factory albums. We're the ones being, you know, rendered obsolete by technology. But he co he also talks about apocalypticism not being sort of uh, positive messianic eschatology, but rather sort of a negative thing, which is just bare life and survival. But we'll, we'll get to that. So the next part is called Planetary Disentanglement and the Hunt for Fugitives. So here he gets into, well immigration and seizure of bodies and so forth so but the entanglement is not all characterized uh, characterizes the now indeed wherever we look so he's saying that at the time we have global integration we also have the need for global disintegration or disentanglement disengage to uh, quote the uh, the uh, sunset silence uh, song by enclosure contradiction and containment i do not simply mean the erection of all kinds of walls and fortifications gates and enclaves are various practices of pract uh, practicing partitioning space of offshoring and fencing off wealth remember the seasteading thing that uh nrx uh, tech silicon valley people were into i am also referring to a quote and this he puts this in italics a matrix of rules mostly designed for those human bodies deemed either in excess unwanted illegal dispensable or superfluous so again this is back to agamben's homo sacer in the sort of geography of power you could say so then he talks about gaza and palestine the native americans uh, south south africa so forth you know he kind of repeats himself here and also comprehensive relative closure is punctuated by periodic military escalations and the generalized use of extrajudicial um 
extrajudicial, you know, taking out of certain targets. This part, the one part I was confused in page 97 is, uh, he says, unmistakably, and of course talks about Europe, unmistakably, uh, ever-increasing multitude of voices are making themselves heard, spurred on by the strength of feeling of uh, fellow living souls. Human chains of solidarity are forming in the darkness of fear and denunciation and faced with unrelenting waves of repression. Compassionate men and women seek to awaken the sleeping fireflies of hospitality and solidarity. <laughs> and of course, uh, academia reverting back to, you know, uh, liberal presuppositions. But it's it's funny, though, the critique I have from a more rightward perspective would be that a lot of this is sort of like the, let's call it anarchic kitsch of activism on the political left. Solidarity for the migrants and so forth. But yet this is also embodied by mainstream institutions that want these people. Like you could look at the European Union, you know, you could look at, or even like I was going to say on the tip of my tongue, Poland, but even Poland now because of uh, a certain war going on is uh, being forced its hand by the European Union, by NATO. Is Poland in the European Union? I think so. Uh, by NATO, you know, to take on the migrants. But you, you can't look at outliers that are uncomfortable with the migrants, such as Poland and Hungary, and saying that, like, that's the rule of it. Because look at France, look at Germany. I don't, you know, I don't have to say it. You know what I mean? For YouTube purposes, I will resist from commenting on it. But you know what I mean? I just find it funny how... A lot of these academics that write about the migrant crisis, how they think that it's like somehow being pushed back against by the neoliberal regime. But it's funny because Mbembe has very, well, you'll see in this chapter is very interesting takes on neoliberalism, which I think is still worth exploring despite his polemics about solidarity with the migrants and so forth. Despite his polemics about the solidarity with the migrants and so on and so forth. Uh, the countries of the North subsidized that those of the South um, besides it seems to counter a little that the countries with weaker intermediate GDPs have welcomed more than 90% of the 65.6 uh, million refugees. Of course, that is true that in the EU in particular, they have to offload it to smaller countries. Old prejudices are constantly recycled from the scrap heap in its cyclical process types, uh, type of racist discourse. Now fantasies are suggested it's both cultural and civilizational. Proclaims the erudite pseudo-experts. They're fleeing because of uh, intergenerational tensions. The poorer, the poorer they are, the more likely they are to leave, but the recognition of lifespan improves. But he is right to, to point out that the wars of aggression in the Middle East have caused the migrant crisis. The solution, in, you know, the solution, that's another subheading here. We must close the borders, filter those who make it across, process them, choose who we want to remain, deport the rest, signs the contracts with the corrupt elites, with the countries of origins, third world countries, transition countries, they must be turned into prison guards of the West, to whom lucrative business administrating brutality can be subcontracted. He doesn't mention it, but that's basically Turkey. Turkey signed a deal, essentially to keep all of their migrants, uh, and, you know, Erdogan... Uh, some people say Erdogan, but I say Erdogan. You know, he's like basically holding a massive weapon over the head of uh, the EU, which I think is pretty, pretty clever, real politique when you think of it. I mean, Turkey, you know, since <laughs> since what the 16th century has been taking W's against Europe for a variety of geopolitical reasons. If you actually look at the position of Turkey, 
They just keep ha being handed W's for a reason. So, even with the pipeline thing recently. Uh, so then he goes into more polemics. The woman, the men, the unwanted children condemned to abandonment, the shipwrecked and downtrodden of humanity. Indeed, thousands weekly, the endless wave wailing and humili humiliation and constant uh, consultants and limbo days of woe spent wandering in airports. While the problem, I think, is the academic prior is like it's our human obligation to take on these displacement populations that will replace the founding stock of these, you know, European countries and now North American countries, if you're Canadian, of course. So, and this, I wrote in my margins, academics being lib is being lib moments. Uh, in fact, everything leads back to borders. These dead spaces of non-connection, which deny the very idea of a shared humanity of a planet that only we have, that we share together and to which we are linked by ephemerality of our common condition. But perhaps to be completely exact, we should speak not of borders, but instead of borderization. What then is this borderization of not the process by which world powers permanently transform certain spaces into impassable places for certain classes of populations? What is it about the, con the conscious multiplication of spaces of loss and mourning where lives of multitude of people judged to be undesirable come to be sheltered? So no-go zones, you know, uh, ethnic ghettos refugee camps you name it like this is basic tectonics of power right what is it not of the way of waging war against enemies whose means of existence survival have previously destroyed with the use of all of uranium warheads banned weapons like white phosphorus so he is right about the sort of uh tactics during the war on terror then he goes on more e-bombs then he uh neutron bombs lightning bolts etc the kind of war of attrition methodically calculated and programmed and implemented with new methods is war against the very idea of mobility, circulation, and speed. While the age we live in is precisely one of, of vocal, vocality, acceleration, increasing abstraction algorithms. So on one end there's speed, and the other end there's very, the very methods of derailing human movement. But then you see the explosion of human movement, so... Really, like, the tw the 2000s war on terror, I guess, really didn't achieve its objective after all. But he's trying to create this sort of uh, dialectic between the speed of movement of bodies and sort of the derailment of bodies. Talks about Moors, uh, indigenous, um, other populations, the homeless. The technological transformation of borders is in full swing. Physical and virtual barriers of separation, digitalization of databases, filing systems, development of new tracking devices, sensors, drones. So leading off from the previous subchapter about the use of technology and, of course, AI algorithms and so forth. And uh, so there's this dichotomy about hyperspeed and sort of the grinding to a halt of speed. So, you know, which you could say you can make an argument for. Migrants and refugees are thus not, as it stands, the main focus of the argument. Furthermore, they have neither the pro proper names or faces. They're displaced. They're the Muslim, and they just survive off of bare life. And, and there's whole zones of indeterminacy of their citizenship. Of course, now they're being integrated. So, again, this is sort of like a very 2000s argument. It's, not really, it's like really ignoring, I think, the problem with uh, a lot of these politics that have come about after, you know, enduring now the perpetual migrant crisis. 
So now he says the world has perpetually ceased to present itself to, onto new terms and ways. We're witnessing the birth of a previously unseen force of human-subject-object relations. So again, this goes to populations being rendered into uh, objectification. As well as the emergence of new ways of conceiving space, our phenomenological experiences of the world are being thoroughly shaken up. So again, this is what he talks about with the repopulation of the Earth. That, you know, in, in the wake of new crises of migration... You have to have these uh, sort of new understandings of things. But of course, you know, uh, this is what sparks sort of ethno-awareness of populations is the encounter with the other, really. Reason and perception are no longer tally. Panic ensues. We see less and less of what is given to us to see and more and more of what we desperately want to see. Even if we are desperate, uh, want to see wisdom, does not, what we want to see does not correspond to reality. Uh, so, perhaps more than ever before, others can present themselves to us in a physical and tactile, concrete way where remaining in ghostly absence in a similarly concrete void, almost as phenomenon. This is indeed the case of migrants, refugees, asylum seekers. They're sort of there, but they're not really there. They're a human mass. They are, they're objected, you could say, in the academic parlance. It is not only the way in which they appear among us that plunges us into chaotic, Chaotic, chronic, existential anxiety is also the matrix of their being of which we suppose the merely the mask. And of course, when he talks about Denon and psychologization of it, he gets into some pretty, uh, pretty wild territory when he talks about sort of the fantasies that he says, uh, this, you know, the, the racialized fantasies towards the others. Well, we'll get to that. I mean, I have to pay all well that version. Uh, we see in balkanized, isolated world, we are the most deadly migration routes. It is Europe who claims the largest number of skeletons, the large marine cemetery in the se in the century. Again, is Europe, the greatest number of deserts, territorial and international waters, channels, islands, straits, and enclaves and waters. And he talks about, you know, all the migrant boats and shipments and so forth. DTAs are simply people without visas or indefinite, indefinite leave to remain and thus judged ineligible for international um, protection. Essentially, they're placed in of in, place of internment, spaces of relegation, a means by which to sideline people considered to be interlu inter, uh, interluders and intruders, lacking valid permits, rendering them illegal and ultimately undeserving of dignity. Well, but that's the get twenty two, right? It's like, is it better to maintain order in their own countries of origins? sparked by wars that NATO helped inflict, like in Libya, but then you bring them over and then they're treated like second-class citizens, which they are. So it's like, what do you, like, this whole process is brought about by the global liberal order. But yet people, identitarians in these European countries, they're faulted for not wanting them. When really you could have developed ways of not intervening in these countries or ways of development that would keep these populations from coming into continental Europe. I mean, it's insanity. Either way you cut it. I, it's like the, the critical theory academic is, is almost edging towards the criticism that the identitarian in Europe has towards these migrant populations. But of course they say, though, it's only humanitarian. We have to bring them in because of, you know, racism or whatever. So I think that's why it's worthy of reading these academic texts. So then he goes on... Um, this is where he critiques liberalism, but let's see if he's right about this from his perspective. One of the major contradictions of the liberal order has always been the tension between freedom and security. 
Today, this question seems to have been cut in two security now matters more than freedom, but really does it, really. Because they're still bringing them in. It's like, this is the problem. The people that determine these policies are not the ones that these people, these academics are criticizing. Identitarians in Europe are not the ones determining policy. So this point is mute. And this is a very liberal, like, if you sacrifice security for freedom, you will get neither. Sorry, if you sacrifice, <laughs> yeah, you know, if you sacrifice freedom for security, you'll get neither. So it's like, you know, I don't know what to say about that. Oh my god, then he talks about the Dark Enlightenment. He doesn't mention Nick Land. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm edging towards. But, well, you know, the current myth claims that technology constitutes the best tool for governing, governing these arrivals. That technology alone allows for resolution of the problem. A problem of order, but of awareness, of identifiers, of anticipation, and predi predi uh, predictions. It is feared that the dream of self-transparent humanity, stripped of all mystery, might prove to be ca catastrophic illusions. For this, for the time being, migrants and refugees are bearing the brunt of it in the long... Well, what about the populations that have to accommodate them? I wonder, what about them, right? Is In the long run, it's by no means certain that they will be the only ones. Under such conditions, how else might we resist the claim by one uh, province of the world of, to universal rate of prediction and predation if not by daring to imagine the impossible? The aboli... Oh, God, the abolition of borders... That is to say, giving all inhabitants of the earth, humans and non-human alike, the inalienable right to freedom of movement on this planet? Y okay, so let's... Then he talks about the Dark Enlightenment. He does not mention Nick Land. He doesn't even say Nick Land. So I wonder why. I wonder he doesn't want to... He, he doesn't want to name the beast, right? That's who I was referring to. And yes, Nick Land is a mutual of mine. It's funny because I screen capped this... Uh, I took a picture of this passage... And I added Nick Land. I said, academics attack. And he replied to me. Uh, I think it's it's worth... You know what's funny? This is the real commentary. This is why other theory cells on YouTube that just explain philosophy to you, this is what they don't get. I'm giving you the real content because Nick Land is my mutual. I am Nick Land's strongest soldier, fattest soldier. And I'm going to give you the real commentary here the real nitty-gritty that other theory sell other philosophy youtubers doesn't get you know plastic pills cannot give you this level of commentary okay oh man did i maybe i shouldn't call people out directly but you know i mean i do like plastic pills videos but like hearing him talk like hearing like other live streams where he's on it's like sort of uh it's like when when a, when an academic cell has like liberal brain, but they don't even know it. I hate to say it, but that's kind of like. Listen, I'm free. Like, I'd be open to debating plastic pills and anything. I'm not calling him out. I'm saying I value his content, but it's just like when he strays away from explaining things. It's uh, <laughs> I've seen some of the live streams. It's not well, not my cup of tea. Put it that way. Not my cup of tea. But uh, the problem, of course, is that liberalism breeds this massification of people and this technocracy that Mbembe is lamenting like the, the you know what i mean so i think like he's saying it's a good thing but really technology necessitates this sort of rootlessness of all peoples and the borderless society the thing he hates the most is what really is causing the thing that he thinks will lead to liberation which is a society without borders and so forth so this is always like the painful contradiction from like a reactionary point of view or whatever you want to call it a more right weird way of looking at things 
is that yes, he's right that the ma you know the massification of peoples and the sort of, the sort of ways in which technocracy um, dictates the value of all human life upon the earth being this quantifiable measure and number and ledger, but it's still like it's the thing that he thinks is going to cure things is uh, not really is already the instantiation of what's happening anyways. So this is. This subchapter is really quite a doozy, by the way. It's called Negative Messianism. But I, you know, I, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't pretend like I'm insulting it because he actually does come out with some great insights, but then, like, his polemics just, like, totally gets in the way of it. Just, like, like, like right here, he doesn't even name Nick Land. But we all know, we all know. We all know. Come on, Dark Enlightenment. We all know. Also, shout out to my boy, my friend. Uh, my, my good friend Nick Land. Well, well, one day, one day he'll come on Content Minded, I hope. Just, I'm, I'm praying, I'm praying. You know, he's, he's warming up to, uh, he's warming up to a religious thought, by the way, uh, recently. It's quite something to see, really. It's, it's incredible. But, uh, anyways, negative messianism. So, uh, let me read it first, and then I'll talk about Nick Land and religion. So, Moments of escalation can also be generally frightening. This is because in the midst of the drear, the dread, I was going to say dreary, the dread many suddenly come to realize the thing can get yet uglier. Uh, moving forward, the problem may in fact happen. Indeed, throughout the world, including the wealthiest parts of the globe, many people are preparing for a disaster. A significant number of uh, techies and apocalyptic libertarians, he means Peter Thiel, he means Peter Thiel and Molebug. Uh, in place such as Silicon Valley, actually believe the world is going to end. Well, maybe, hopefully. He, he, I mean... <laughs> and I, I, wrote, I wrote in the side, lol, cack. But uh, no, but I think that, you know, it's it's funny when... Okay, so I, I'm de getting derailed, but it's funny how in the tradition of certain forms of academia and critical theory, it's not like conspiratorial the way that a lot of like populist or libertarian or right-wing notions of conspiracy theory pan out rather you know as you know this is basic Foucault 101 the discourses instantiate um the discourses instantiate certain cycles and behaviors and certain modes and methods of doing things like you know all this right this is basic like biopower and governmentality 101 but Mbembe here is talking about direct actors. So he's verging on the conspiratorial. The way that like a Chomskyite would. It's all the neoliberals, it's all like the capitalists, you know, like... Meaning that he's giving himself room to think in this space. By like directly naming the Silicon Valley. He's essentially saying that, you know, he's doing conspiracy from the, the left wing... I mean, he probably doesn't think it that way, obviously, but I think I feel that uh, he's allowing a more polemical space that le you know gives himself room and space to like call out these people, and of course he's going to go down the road of like yes, all these Silicon Valley people they're all hopped up on Nick Land and Molebug, and they're all fascists and you know X Y Z. I mean, we've all been here, right? Twenty sixteen really did break their brains, but no, but I think Mbembe. This is why I think out of all the, the sort of uh, people that are panned as like post-colonial leftist academics, I could probably like sit down and talk to him. I wonder if he could, I wonder if I could get a hold of him. 
and he could do an episode of Content Minded. That would be amazing. I don't know. That never happened. But you know what I mean. Like, um, it's it's interesting how his polemics, he sort of, like, verges off, which makes him, like, as, as much as it is hard-hearing theory, he does, like, go into, I, I guess what he feels is, like, a poetical space. He, like, trails off and... He really does things that like a lot of other dry like Western academics don't necessarily do. And maybe because he does come from a different perspective, not to like, of course, I'm not like trying to exoticize him, but I'm just saying that out of all the like critical theory books I've read, this is one certainly has more flair to it. It certainly has something that I guess Mumbembe felt at the time because of Trump and all that. You know, these things are pressing and therefore he allows himself this room to like verge into territory that usual academics try not to uh you know fear to tread so maybe preparing for a disaster so silicon valley human species is moving towards a dark future an eschatological moment that might signal either the end of history on earth or the return of some kind of idyllic past oh based if true be <laughs> no but I, I say based if true but i feel like yes this is true and i would be i would lie to you as someone who is uh, currently being paid off by Peter Thiel. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I wish, uh, maybe unless. No, no, actually, I, I, you know, if Peter Thiel wants to give me money, you know, if Compact Magazine wants to cut me a deal, uh, you know. <laughs> but any, I have a lot of friends that write for Compact Magazine. I shouldn't talk mad smack, but, you know. I feel that, yeah, a lot of Silicon Valley uh, people are trying to... Uh, like, didn't, like, uh, James O'Keefe go to the DeVere Ball? Like, you know, I mean, I don't know. Those people, I'm getting distracted. I would just be lecturing you about DeVere. But, uh, you know, anyways, this is really, so this is the kicker. This is page 105. This is one I've been, like, selling. I've been teasing the main event. The main event, you know, it's uh, I, <laughs> the title match, you know. the <laughs> Anyways. No, not really, not really. The Phantom chapter is much more spicier, so. But, you know, anyways, I, I think that he is somewhat correct about the apocalypticism to, like, get a more serious point out of it. Here we go. As confidence in freedom and democracy erodes, paranoia is increasingly becoming the dominant language of both power and those who oppose it. Opposition to popular suffrage, egalitarianism, pluralism is the cornerstone of the dark enlightenment and he puts this in scare quotes i wonder if he read the wikipedia page that cited my paper i wrote for thermometer magazine uh i have the screen caps where i mentioned foucault i wonder if mumbembe read that and i would be like i would send him an email i'd be like do you remember when you read the about the dark enlightenment of wikipedia and my paper there my article the uh, foucaultian cathedral was there i have screen caps to prove this by the way but anyways, thus calls for the exit. So a political religion, a political religion, a political religion, the dark enlightenment. And Nick Land replied to me. So you're getting commentary on the this book by the man who wrote it, the concept of the dark enlightenment, who wrote the book, which, which is also available in Imperium Press now. You're getting live commentary on Necropol... Can, can any, can theory, can philosophy and theory get you that? No, it can't. Only me and maybe Metanomad can get you this cutting analysis. Maybe Justin Murphy. But anyways, I, I screen capped this. I, I took a photo of this. And Nick Land replied to me saying a political faith looks mighty good right now. That's what he said. 
in response to Mbembe. So if, if Achille Mbembe is listening to this, Nick Land is well aware of you trying to uh, trying to call him out and subtweet him. So, man, whoa, that's amazing. So thus calls for the exit from democratic society and for total corporate, corporate and absolute dictatorship. Deployment of the familiar tropes of white victim. Oh, wow, white victimhood. This credo reaffirms the myth of human biodiversity. I wonder if he's Red Spandrel. <laughs> this is wild. When I see like main, the most mainstream, mainstream academics, that's like a very popular book. You're mentioning it's like... <laughs> mentioning stuff the frogs obsess over. It's I always find a, a little peevish joy in it, if you will. Human biodiversity and the supposed differences in intelligence across races. It sustains the dream of a future society integrally run by technology and specifically set aside a part of the world for unregulated experiment. Yeah, again, that's he's conflating dark enlightenment with patchwork, I feel. But like Nick Land would say the patchwork takes off eventually. So, you know, unlike mold bug, you know, patches don't say, stay... Um, the best one always wins. I think even Mulebug would say this, but Nick Land takes this way further, right? So, but yeah, you know, experimentation. Uh, this is the techno R-Ax fascist dream, right? This is, uh, and here it gets even worse. Quasi-metaphysical dispositions, therefore, characterize our time. Each is underpinned by a particular theology of the future. In the first constellation, the future is the past, in the second, it is fundamentally open to nothingness. The world is on the road to serfdom and the end is near. So again, he brings in Hayek, but I mean, fair enough. I mean, considering like libertarianism is the basis of a lot of like NRX thinking. Destruction is inevitable and since what is to come will be destroy us all anyways, many are asking, why wait? Let's bring it on. Let's just end it all now. Well, I, I don't think that's really accelerationism. I think accelerationism is more of a descriptive than something with a verb in it. Unless you're Nick Land, though, it has verbs in your sentences. Another configuration celebrates the fact that human reason has seemingly reached its limits. So, you know, he talks about quasi-mysticism soon. Another configuration, you know, so the fundamentals of truth can now, now better be expressed in the form of algorithmic thinking by machines of different kinds capable of making decisions. So he is right, though. There is a quasi-metaphysical faith. I mean, the whole AI discourse... You know, it's funny how Mbembe, he's, he's, I, I gotta, I gotta, like, really get, give it to him. He does have a knack for, at least, uh, unlike other, like, these, you know, hackademics that don't really know what they're talking about. He does, like, sense the air of, like, the, you know, the divide is people that want collapse, like, return to the tradition, and techno-future horrorism of the Landian Dark Enlightenment variety. And, you know, either way, we get to own the egalitarians. We get to own the libs. In either model, we get to own the multiculturalists in either model, right? So, but of course, Mbembe would say that this is all just like a product of white anxiety at the end of it, right? Like, I mean, let's be honest about it. This is really what he thinks it is. He thinks like all this writing is essentially just like European Faustian civilization being anxious over its own future. I mean, in the Fanon chapter, he admits as much. So if any other like academic wants to attack me by saying that, I don't say that Mbembe thinks it's the whole of it. He obviously has a very sophisticated analysis, but I'm just saying that that's the truth. I mean, he says it over and over again. In the Fanon chapter, he talks about sexual anxiety in particular. I mean, he basically enumerates it, that all of this is down to the 
racialized anxiety of Faustian European civilization that has created these, you know, technologies, has created these, you know, techno-reason ways of looking at being, and now is finding a supreme anxiety at the end of it. And he's kind of, like, not wrong. I Controversially, I mean, like, controversially as someone on the right wing, you know, fully admitting this, he's kind of not wrong. I don't say it's all about racial anxiety, but I do think the technological part is something that Heidegger intuited, and I think he's correct on. I think, and yes, okay, there is a, okay, let's face it. There is an element of racial anxiety there. Yes, I mean, it's it's only logical, really. I mean, if you look at the modern system, like, again, without saying it for YouTube purposes, but I'm saying that it, it, you shouldn't be ashamed to admit that this is, like, his diagnosis of it. His reading of people like Nick Land and Moldbug. Well, I mean, Moldbug, that's complicated, but you know what I mean, like, his reading of, like, techno-libertarian accelerationism is essentially prescriptive. I mean, of course, it's a misreading because most accelerationism is not prescriptive. It's describing a system. Well, I don't know. With Nick Land, it's kind of hard to tell where that begins and ends, but, you know. See, I'm kind of playing with him. I'm not like these other right-wingers. I'm not like James Lindsay. I'm not saying this is evil. I'm not, like, you know, I'm not trying to, like... Anyways, I'm trying to be fair here. I'm trying to be fair, but anyways... But he is right. There, this is leading to a technomania that gives over into a technosis mindset where technology can reveal all being of beings and so forth. Oh boy. <laughs> Many contemporary versions of the messianic take form of American prosperity theology. Here, conspicuous consumption, conspicuous consumption is both an act of faith and an investment in one's own future blessings. Yeah, he's kind of, he's right about that. The dictionary, the dichotomy between the sacred and the profane have been erased. Miracles are the stock in trade. He's right about this. He's right. The, the, it's it's counter-initiatory. The sacred becomes profane and vice versa. Um, spending is turned into a higher calling and a spiritual pathos in gaudy pageantry. Healing miracles, it is claimed, are being performed in tumors, sickle cell anemia, and emphysema squashed by prayer and daily baptisms. A form of casino messianism, prosperity, the theology, is set up as a theme park, a triumph of a deception. Uh, but, you know, it's funny, this is also present. This is more, uh, this is actually more present in the global self. But it is true how, it's like what Spangler said about the second order faith, that you will see, like, cults and various, like, shysters and shaman guru hucksters and all those people. Like, UG Krishnamurti really, you know, hit the nail on the head. A lot of most gurus are just like... Uh, well, you can't trust them, but you know. But this is like second... I, I mean, I should talk to sp someone who's more experienced in Spangler than such as I, but... Though evangelical entertainment lures consumers and traps them with necrotizing spectacles before splitting them all out, their pockets noticeably lighter, in yet another constellation which combines technophilia and millenarianism, the old quest for immortality is reactivated. So again, transhumanism... Uh, the belief is that technology will overcome the brute empirical facts of the human condition that is death itself. So again, even the right wing has embraced some form of this with like techno futurism, you know, uh, certain uh, painters of Austrians. But anyways, the latter is no longer thought of as irreversible. It's believed to be the chronic preser cryonic preservation, which involves the freezing of parts of corpses for later resurrection might open the door to unlimited lifespans. 
digital, repl digital replication of the human mind may eventually be downloaded. So he's going through all the messianism, but he does say something very interesting when he comes to uh, the subchapter, Return to Animism. And uh, that will be the end, and I will have to go... The end of viscerality, but the end of viscerality is, like, very... Uh, it's, it, you know, it, it is, like, quite interesting, so... I'm trying to go through my notes because a lot of it is important and a lot of it we have to get through. But I only have a few pages left, but you know, a few pages takes like 20 minutes at least. So, contrary to biblical messianism, oh wait, sorry, I skipped. The full force of messianism resides in the concept of redemption still to come. The most dramatic instance of redemption in history of humanity is that of the slave. Messianicity, uh, messianicity is originally tied to the purchasing of humans of slaves by God. The human being formerly owned by a master, a slave is decried bound by God. So Christ's blood to free the slaves to ransom and supplied out of God's own blood. Uh, the sort of final sacrifice. <laughs> oh, I, I also wrote in the chap the sub-chapter here. Uh, so a certain forum that endorses this type of thinking, uh, you know, uh, with anime profile pictures and gripers. But anyways... Contrary to biblical messianism, contemporary avatars of messianism are not concerned about the fate of the slave. Neg well, negative messianism is kind of messianism as they're forfeited the idea. So here's this is a very important point, and this is where he's correct. I think this is where I feel that everyone from like Lincola to Nick Land to like eco environmental extinction rebellion people, everyone from uh, like popular media, left and right. Evil Noah Harari, Evol Noah Harari. I love calling him Evil Noah Harari, as you know. But so negative messianism is a kind of messianism that has either forfeited the idea of redemption as such, or has been reduced to a crude belief in the ex expiratory power of bloodshed. Right? I endorse. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> I shouldn't joke, but you know. It is not about salvation. So even technology, even transhumanism would require basically the erasure of the human as we know it, which is an incredible act of violence. It's the act of violence par excellence. You know, it's like what, uh, it's like to quote Jurassic Park, it's like, you know, discoveries of violent penetrative act, right? Like it, it maims and harms and mutilates more than it discovers even. So, oh my God, this is a powerful page. It's page 106. Crubly, in this mirror version, it's about survival and willingness to sacrifice or be sacrificed. I am a bloody step order. Um, it aims to turn a forgiving God into an ethic and an angry God. An ethnic and angry God. Wow, I wonder, there's quite a, there's quite a, I hate to, you know, he's kind of right. I mean, these ideas are present in the online right in uh, certain sectors. It is a major version. It's about to collect, um, and heroing before the apocalypse in its major version. In its most techno-dystopian instantiation, the future is of an anxious bird flying in circles over a hot, flat, crowded landscape, the global favela, if you will, um, biding its time until an ISIS-operated drone spying weapons. Birds flew in its face. What else to do? The clock is ticking down and nothing is sustainable. The seas are boiling and filthy with plastic bags and drowning polar bears. The smoggy air will soon be swarming with more U.S. military drones, rogue states, nuclear drones, homemade bioweaponry, and Amazon's fleets of robotic delivery devices. Woo! That's, that is incredible. That is 
He's not wrong, though. He's not wrong. You have to realize this. Um, and in that quote, he was actually quoting um, in Viscerality, the, I think it's 26. Yes, he's quoting Heather Harvleski's Apocalypse Soon. And uh, I believe he doesn't, you know, again, I'm trying, I'm looking through the, uh, you know, the different citations here. Like he, he, you know, he cites quite a few people, but he doesn't tend to cite Nick Land though. I don't, he, I don't see Nick Land. Oh my God. He cites Mark Lamont Hill. That's, that's quite good. Um, whoa. Um, Sam Frank. No, I don't see it. I, I, so I was right. I, I do not see Nick Land. So, whoa, that's, uh, yeah, I wonder, yeah, I don't even see citations for the Dark Enlightenment. So really, I guess he couldn't cite it. I mean, you could have just saw, you know, cited uh, Nick Land's writing, but of course you can't do that. I mean, that's, you know, that's verboten. Um, but anyways, I'm just, that's, again, this is a pedantic, polemical point on my part. But anyways, moving on. Stories about an increasingly dangerous and insecure world in turn feed a thirst to trace and mete out justice and retribution to dispense anonymous and not-so-anonymous enemies. From terror cells manufacturing AKs on 3D printers to... Oh, you probably thought about a certain guy who did that. Uh, assassins with termite-sized drone armies. Then he goes on and on. A messianism of destruction is seeking not to actually bring about a community, nor does it seek compromises. Rather, it emphasizes... Um, purity and self-separation as ways of starving off the disease and disasters of a cracking up of civilization a crack up civilization the spirit of the time is not only about survival it is about a renewed will to redact as opposed to the will to care a will to ser ser sever all relationships as opposed to the will to engage in the exacting labor of repairing the ties that have been broken and the next chapter he talks about return to animism which is like you know, this chapter about apocalypticism is like this sort of uh, technophilia. Uh, but but here, here we'll have more about uh, animism. But it's funny, though. In, in a way, I think that he's aware, though, of the anxiety that comes with this quote-unquote repopulation of the earth. And that some people view it as no choice. But to instantiate a form of necropolitics in order for self-preservation. Now, I will leave you... On that note, apparatically, because I fear if I say anything more, then it would grate not only with my uh, impartial analysis, semi-impartial analysis, but also the YouTube algorithm probably wouldn't want me to entertain that thought. So moving on. This is the return to animism. Another key feature is the advent of electronic reason and computational media, as well as the return of animism. Right? It's almost as if, and I wrote in the, the margins, Byung-Chul Han, in the sense of, uh, you know, infoocracy breeding a sort of, like, quasi-mysticism, but also in times of, like, great info overload and the sort of total exhaustion of the information society, there is also, at the same time, a sort of return to some things that are quite ancient within the human psyche. In old African cognitive worlds, old African ones, some objects and tools were thought to be mere images of humans. It was not as if in interacting with them, humans were interacting with illusory entities situated on other sides of the mirror. So again, I guess they lacked um, an awareness of readiness to hand. 
you know, it's sort of like the guitar becomes an extension of the musician. It was not as if interacting with them, humans were interacting with the looser entities uh, situated on the other side of the mirror. In any case, in numerous circumstances, the impossibility of ever fixing such a boundary was universally recognized. It was also generally recognized that there was there will always be some degree of overlap and even reversibility between the human, his body, and the objects he invented. That agency was shared between different entities and co-agency was itself a key element in the nurturing and, circum, uh, nurturing and circulation of all kinds of vital forces. Again, this is basic animism. Uh, you know, all of life is imbued with a sort of great earth mother vitality or whatever flavor of um, essence that underlies all of existence, the sort of mana or life force that is within all beings. Whatever the case, human beings were never satisfied with simply being human beings. They were constantly in search of a supplement to their humanhood. Often their humanhood, they added attributes of animals, properties of plants and various animate and inanimate objects. Personhood was therefore not a matter of ontology. It was always a matter of composition and of assemblage of a multiplicity of vital beings. So we have a more advanced civilization. You have a more advanced notion of personhood as being an amalgamation of forces, not simply um, at the whim of one totalizing force. Or, I mean, the idea of one totalizing force remains, but these sort of separate entities, these separate uh, sort of lower magics, as uh, James Frazier would call it, these sort of proliferate into culminating into the human being the most advanced form of this as one vital power among many. To convert one specific object into something else and to capture the force inherent in every single matter and being constituted the ultimate form of power and agency. The world itself was a transactional world. So here, here he's saying that with, tech, with infoocracy, sort of the loss of power breeds these sort of delusions of uh, a greater sense of, um, you know, trying to recapture it. And so various myths are propped up to do this and so forth. Moving on, Maduro rejected such a way of being, such different ways of seeing and acting was with objects and re relegated them to the child of the childhood of man. Today, the technological devices that saturate our lives have become extensions of ourselves. So it's like we're returning to matter being itself imbued with a vital power and agency. And the process, new relation between humans and other living or vital things has been instantiated. This new relationship, not unlike what African traditions had long prefigured. Not long ago, it was understood that human persons, whom the West mistook for white man, of course, he's got to add that one in, was neither a thing nor an object, nor was it an animal or a machine. Human emancipation was precisely premised on such distinction. Today, many want to capture for themselves the force, energies, or vitalism. Well, I wonder who he's talking about there. I wonder if he's read a certain pervert. Uh, of the objects that surround us, most of which we have invented. We think of ourselves as made up of vital sp or uh, various spare or animate parts. So here we assemble them, and for what purpose is the question of late modern identity politics raised so um, unequivocally? So, you know, this is like assemblage theory of the body. This is prosthesis. We're almost returning to the human being as being lowered into object, but also 
as a source of trying to recapitulate our sort of uh, subjectivity. And so we assemble each other and so forth. I mean, this is like the delusions or the dreams or whatever you want to call them of like, you know, post-humanism and transhumanism. So, but why is he saying all this? Why is he always going to like this dystopian futurism and, you know, prosthesis and extension of the body? Because he's going to bring it back to the necropolitical order that like the, you know, sort of the selective overcoming on one end, but also the selective deployment of death on the other is what constitutes our own hypermodern world or, well, modern world hypermodern. That for some populations, it's like millions must you know what. For others, they become like demigods. So, neoliberal, and this is, he gets to the point of liberalism, which is very interesting. Neoliberalism has created the conditions for a renewed convergence in a time fusion between the living human being and objects, artifacts, or the technologies that supplement or augment us and are in the process transfigured and transformed by us. Right? Because, of course, he's right about this. And, and I think, like, him and, you know, more reactionary thinkers, they can say that, you know, the current global liberal regime says that everyone's a moving part. In fact, human beings are moving parts that have different functions and can be um, assembled and, and deconstructed and so forth. This event, which we equate to our turn to animism, is nevertheless not, not without dangers for the idea of emancipation in the age of crypto-fascism. Oh, 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 well, let me tell you. Um, I don't think crypto-fascists are setting the agenda, but let's agree to disagree. What does it purport... Or rather, what does it pretend for the future of democracy? Democracy understood not in the national terms as a kind of planetary or shared responsibility agency in relation to the future of all inhabitants of the earth. Did democracy really mean that? Honestly, did it really mean this emancipatory project of all creatures of the earth? No, it didn't. I mean, come on. Let's, let's, be, let's not be, you know, idealists here. Humans and other not and other than humans. The a first reason... So again... The, it's funny how he's saying this in a negative sense, but someone like Nick Land, I remember, I think it was in Xenosystems, where he said that, given the complexity of technology and CRISPR and the human being becoming this force of different energies and assemblages coming together and rebuilding the human as we know it, given society and its tendency to complexify under hypercapitalism, Nick Land said that any political arrangement that isn't just outright explicitly fascistic will just be too complicated to exist. It'll just be too nuanced. It'll be too, it'll be too much of a Rube Goldberg machine to actually exist. So maybe, so Mbembe would say that, yeah, you know, Nick Land, he's right, but that's terrible. Whereas Nick Land, well, you know, uh, after all the fact is today that is hardly any cons consensus concerning what constitutes reality and how to access it. So he's right. This is basic. You cannot distinguish between the real and the facsimile of the real or replication that is beyond the real. So all that we are left with is ontological difference. Every form of difference, minor differences included, is imparted ontological attributes in a context in which we cannot refer to one another to one in the same extent deity who would have the last word when it comes to grand and a singular truth or adjudicating between right and wrong. Like, total perspectivalism is the rule of the day. 
a major consequence of this apparent collapse of the basic foundations of knowledge and the cognition is the imp impossibility of accountability and the radical impossibility we increasingly find ourselves in. Specifically, what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. This is like, you know, post-truth. Moving on. Uh, this condition of ep uh, epistemic obsolescence and indeterminacy is itself a consequence of or has been exacerbated by the over-reliance underlay capitalism on modes of producing of knowledge or production of knowledge that take for the facts only that which can be measured and experimented with. So again, this is sort of... He's right, though. I, and I only highlight... It. You know, what I do is I highlight... And the most important parts, I like write little stars next to them. But I think I'm going to have to uh, leave democracy after financialization for the next part because the phantom part is quite long and I might have to split that up. So I will read further because we're getting over an hour now. But I, I didn't realize when I pre-read this the importance of it, which is that reason or hyper-rationalism, the project of the Enlightenment... You know, it's funny. I was watching um, The Deepest Lore with uh, academic agent and uh, John D was not, but was um, Imperium press, Mike from Imperium press and uh, my, my other good friend, uh, well, all three of them are my good friends. <laughs> you know, I just like saying that, right? You know, but the had on my good friend, Alexander Adams, where they were talking about modernism and the right wing. And there was this one part where it was uh, Francis Bacon's famous triptych of the creature screaming. And there was one thing that Mike from Imperium Press said that basically this painting is depicting the negative side, the nihilistic side of reason from the Enlightenment onwards. That we're, not, we're left with nothing in the age of hyper-rationalism. We're left with nothing but the screaming maw that gives us nothing. But now Mbembe is saying that the excess of hyper-reason the project of the enlightenment onwards that that leaves us with a form of animism at the end of it ironically enough that that leaves us with a form of unreason because now we can't determine what is true and what is false because the very technology and the very social apparatuses that have stripped away commonly held understandings of what is tr right and wrong true and false those can't be relied on anymore because they've been robbed from us you know, I mean, he wouldn't put it in those terms. He wouldn't put it in those right-wing reactionary terms. But it's essentially meaning the same thing, only he says this is capitalism. Whereas right-wing would say that, well, certain people in the right would say it's late capitalism, but others would say that, you know, I mean, yes, it's the extension of the Enlightenment project and reason and, and you know, instrumental rationality through capitalism. But it's also other things, according to, you know, various people. But in the left-wing, it's like, you know, late capitalism. This is the basic assumption here. This is, you know... This is Critical Theory 101. But it's it's true in part in that Mumbembe is getting at the sort of the analysis of what leads to unreason through hyper-rationality. That is what we have to grapple with. So that's very, very interesting, to say the least. This trend towards a relentless impoverishment of the real has only escalated during the second half of the 20th century in the first decade of the 21st. It has reached a point where today knowledge is increasingly defined as knowledge for the market. The market is turn, in turn is increasingly reimagined as the primary mechanism for val validation of truth. What can you sell? And this is largely true. 
So we have the worst forms of excessive left-wing ideology and the worst forms of a form of liberal ideology, which is increasing marketization of all life. Since markets themselves are increasingly turned into algorithmic structures and technologies, the only useful knowledge today is supposed to be algorithmic. Again, this is, you know, basic infoocracy, right? Instead of actual human beings with a body, history, and flesh, big data and statistical inferences are all that counts. And both are mostly derived from computation. So then he goes on about the algorithm. Uh, uh, Matteo Pasquinelli explained algorithmic reason is a form of rationality. And I believe uh, Byung Chohan also cites uh, Pasquinelli. Whose finality is about to understand the understanding of vast amounts of data according to a specific vector. That recording of emerging, emerging properties and the forecasting of tendencies. Uh, the metadata society is characterized by the accumulation of information about information. It's very meta. Uh, but again, this is, if you, you know, my readers, my listeners, this is, you know, basic infoocracy right here. Power thus is increasingly about identifying patterns or connections in random data in a context which is the opposite between information and knowledge. Knowledge and data, data and image, thinking and seeing appears to collapse. Computational and algorithmic logic is now found at the very source of general perception. As a result of the conflation of knowledge, computation, and marketing, concept or contempt has been extended to anyone who has nothing to sell and nothing to buy. Or anything that can be bought or sold. Religion, in a certain extent the work of art, anything that animates human beings apart from just buying and selling... You know, that's that's looked down upon nowadays. Knowledge, uh, philosophy, you name it, right? The alignment notion of the rational subject captures and is capable of deliberation and choice is gradually being replaced by the consciously deliberating and choosing consumer. All knowledge is consumption. All truth is consumption now, Right? So Mbembe would say that, well, you know, the racists, they choose their own truth, and the post-colonists, they choose their own truth, and these people, maybe the Raelians, you know, they, they choose their own thing. Um, people that worship, you know, it's like what Terrence McKenna said once. He's like, well, nowadays we have a, a society of chaos. You know, here someone has, a, you know, chaos magic. There's a Discordian. There's a fascist. There is a guy that worships the Pleiades. He said this in the early 90s, by the way, but now it's only intensified. Of course, I mean, he was uh, a pioneer of the internet as well, so that was another, another thing, too. We are witnessing the loss of authority of established forms of evidence-making, a growing disregard for scientific expertise. Yeah, but, I mean, a lot of that scientific expertise led to this. The stripping of knowledge and certainty in, in a lot of institutions. So, I don't know what he means by that. I guess he's, th again, this is like a classical liberal intellectual dark web type of uh, argument right here. I hate to say it. I mean, it's true. I mean, oh, post-truth and the lack of scientific certainty. But only it's a more leftist manifestation. Um, a lot of uh, those uh, intellectual dark web types will actually revert to uh, leftist talking points when you push them hard enough, uh, funny enough. But uh, scientific expertise, reduction of the expertise of numbers and codes. But he is kind of correct. I mean, as much as I think a lot of science is fake, I mean, 
you can't like throw everything out. That's just, you know, impossible. All of which throws into confusion the related forms of accountability. How do we know in the face of uncertainty? The reason is that very um the reason is that the very concept of evidence has been discredited discredited, thrown into confusion and related forms of accountability. No accountability without some form of other evidence. How are we to get to the reality of reality is now the question at the center of public debate as recently illustrated by the notion of a post-fact. Of course, he had to say this, right? Post-truth. The main causality of a post-fact world is arguably democracy itself. Democracy has to future... Um, has no future in a faceless, uh, factless world or in a world without evidence, that is accountability. Such a world is by definition hostile to the very idea of reason and freedom. Again, this is my problem. It was my problem with both uh, Myung Han and now Mbembe, is that really, can you really think that democracy can last? I'm saying really too much, but you know. Uh, I don't. Th I think that's an illusion. I think that democracy is actually the poison that caused the post-truth world. When you democratize every form of, of uh, when you hook up pure secular humanist egalitarianism to democracy, you know it never can work. It'll just lead to post-truth every single time because you can't sustain that multicultural civilization. And, and claim that they're, you know, at the same time, you want to repopulate the earth. You want to um, bring about a total borderless world, but also say that, well, there's no real source of authority of truth anymore. This is impossible. That is my main criticism of Akile Mbembe. I hate to say it, like, that's, again, even Byung Chohan slips into this boomerism of, like, worshipping democracy. Anyways, let's take a break. We'll finish off Viscerality in the paywalled version because we have to paywall it because the next chapter in France Fanon is quite spicy and quite charged with various uh, <laughs> unoptical things. So uh, let's go to some a music break by the wonderful Philip Daniel. I'll see you on the other side. To all my, uh, my glorious uh, pay pigs. <laughs> 